We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Welcome to Chasing Hardware, the podcast that sits down with the sports figures you grew up with and hears their stories. Welcome to Chasing Hardware. I am your host, Rich Lamello. My guest today was a six-time All-Star for the Los Angeles Dodgers, and he was the co-MVP of the 1981 World Series. He also helped the Chicago Cubs make the playoffs in 1984, ending a nearly 40-year drought. And he was also a member of the most iconic and enduring infield in baseball history. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome to Chasing Hardware, Mr. Ron Say. Ron, welcome. Thank you, Rich. Glad to be here. Excellent. Uh, well, I'm glad to have you here, Ron. Um, let's let's just jump right into it. You were born and raised in, in Tacoma, Washington, and went to Mount Tahoma High School. Tell me a little bit about growing up in the Pacific Northwest and and in you know kind of the 50s and 60s. Uh I Eventually, uh, at a very early age, my father uh, pushed me through the door of the boys club, Southland Boys Club, and uh, that's kind of where all my uh, athletic endeavors began. I started playing at an early age. I played everything, uh, baseball, basketball, football, Um, uh, pretty much uh, hung out there in my spare time, and it was about five miles, I would say, from my home. And uh, after I was able to ride a bike over there, I did. And uh, I helped, you know, open the place, close the place, hand out the equipment, uh, sign people up, uh, hand out towels, answer the phone, you name it. Uh, It it was a a good learning experience for me. Uh, But I had uh, a childhood dream that uh, actually came on the backfield of the South and Boys Club. one Saturday morning, probably about 10 a.m., I uh, uh, the only epiphany I think I've had in my life was uh, uh, emerging itself. And I'm saying to myself as I'm standing in the batter's box, I said, God, wouldn't it be great if I could play this every day? And uh, so it became, uh, you know, my passion. And, uh, you know, I had to wait some time for that to evolve. Uh, but uh, my goal was always to become a major league baseball player. And uh, I certainly had a great time playing 
football and basketball, and I was good enough to do all of those things uh, time. And so, uh, yeah, it. Uh, I started work for my dad when I was 12 years old. Uh, he was a uh, World War II veteran who came back from Japan and uh, uh, met my mother uh, and uh, got married uh, rather quickly and uh, at the age of 20. And uh, he worked for Union Oil for essentially the rest of his life. And he started me working at 12 o'clock or 12, uh, 12 years old. And uh, that's the one part that I kind of uh, have some anxieties about, because from that point on until I was uh, a graduating senior in high school, uh, my weekends were taken and my summers were uh, filled with six days a week work job. Right. And kind of ironic that your, your dad worked for Union Oil. And that was like, wasn't that the main sponsor out in the outfield of Dodger Stadium? Yeah, it was ironically. We had a gas station actually uh, behind the left field pavilion, and we used to get uh, auto script for that uh, based on some performances or things that we had won. Oh, that's cool. And so, yeah, so you go to Mount Tahoma High, and like you said, you, you play football, basketball, baseball, and you're recruited to play baseball at Washington State. You're actually drafted coming out of high school by the Mets in the thir- 19th round. Or something like that, but you decide not to, to pursue. You decide to go to Washington State. Had you been looking at other schools, like for other sports, or even you know for baseball, or was was Washington State what you were locked in on? Uh, I was pretty locked in on Washington State. Uh, we had a really good group of pl- people over there. Uh, we had seven guys sign off our club. We didn't have freshman eligibility uh, back then in the pack pack eight, as it was called back then. Uh, and you know, the obstacle that I actually faced, uh, even though I had options coming out of high school, I had a chance to start my profession and also had a chance to go to Washington state on a baseball scholarship, but the Vietnam war was staring me in the face. And so that was an easy decision. And unless there was an offer that, uh, I couldn't refuse and there was not, uh, then I was going to go to school and I was going to, uh, you know, I think, uh, hopefully build my stock and uh, sign after my sophomore year. That, those were the draft laws back then. And uh, so that's that's kind of the way that it worked up to that point, but- uh, Interesting. And and so, yeah, so like you said, you, you freshman year, you have to play freshman ball at that point. Sophomore year, you play varsity and you obviously get, you catch people's attention because now you get drafted in the third round by the Dodgers. And at that point is your coach, was it Bobo Brayton? Is he telling you you should go, or is that your own decision? Uh, well, it was my own decision, but of course he wanted me to stay. He tried to talk me into it and say, you know, we could use another year, you know, just to refine. Uh, we know where you're going, uh, but uh, it would be, and and I understand his point. Um, you don't like to, you know, have to recruit people and then have them leave after one year. Uh, but, uh, it was, it was etched in stone. Uh, here was the opportunity that I've been waiting for. Uh, uh, and it came up and then, you know, I had to go back to school after I signed as well, because I still needed to be protected. And I think it was my second spring training that I missed that, uh, I, uh, eventually, uh, uh, got into a reserve unit in my hometown and uh, did my basic training in AIT and then was doing monthly meetings and summer camp for six years. Uh, but that was my way to then stop the abbreviated uh, missing of, of spring training and continue on with my career. 
Gotcha. What, what's AIT? Advanced Individual Training. Oh, okay. Got it. Got it. And so, and so you, you, you sign with, you know, the Dodgers organization, you go to Tri-City, which is actually in the state of Washington. So your first minor league baseball assignment is in, is not that far from Washington state, actually. Um, How was that? How was that transition from being, you know, a young college guy, right? You're only a sophomore to all of a sudden you're playing pro ball. Well, uh, you know, I was ready. You know, I had a chance to, you know, now be out on my own for, for a couple of years after I left the house uh, you know, uh, start tending for myself more than my parents and, uh, you know, get a feel for what it's like to be on your own. And I felt that through the two years of education that I got that it uh, further enhanced me to, to move forward. Uh, I was, you know, ready to go, anxious to go, ready to tackle my, uh, my childhood dream and, uh, turned out to be a great experience. Had a really good year. Uh, was the all-star third baseman for the league. We won the league championship. We also had Joe Ferguson and Doyle Alexander, who had uh, uh, successful careers in the major league. And uh, uh, it was a, uh, uh, you know, a good start. And uh, the next year following that, that's when I missed the entire amount of spring training because of uh, going to basic training in AIT. And I ended up showing up, uh, I think it was maybe a month and a half late uh, for uh, the season. Sustained an injury, uh, needed to kind of get myself back, uh, didn't have any opportunity to do any baseball while I was there uh, training uh, for, uh, uh, you know, I, I was a medic and uh, uh, eventually went, to, you know, uh, back to Bakersfield. And then I capped off a real good Bakersfield season, got myself back on the major league roster and uh and uh, it, it was a uh, an informative period. Uh, you know, I had had a setback. You know, I realized that, uh, you know, that uh, I, I had uh, more work to do, uh, but I was now in a better position to give full time to that. And, uh, you know, within three years, I was uh, knocking on the door. I uh, had a breakout year in Spokane with Tom Lasorda. Uh, hit 329 with 32 home runs, 123 runs batted in in like 120, 30 some games or so. And that was the year that I got called up. And uh, ironically, uh, eight days after the day that I was getting called up, I was getting married in Chicago at the, at the uh, Drake Hotel. Oh, is that right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So the biggest two things in my life happened within eight days at that time. And uh, they were both pretty spectacular. Oh, that's great. Um yeah. And it's amazing. Like, I mean, obviously, you know, you always hear about the Dodger way. It's amazing going back, looking at some of the minor league rosters that you were on loaded with, with, you know, guys who would not only play in the majors, but play for the Dodgers. And, you know, a lot of them be key parts of that 81. Well, the multiple world series teams that you were on to include the 81 champs. Um, when you're in Bakersfield, you're playing with Steve Yeager, um, who's catching, <clears throat> and uh, that uh, that that year, you also go up to Albuquerque for a few games, and you're playing with guys like Charlie Huff, Steve Garvey, uh, Bill Buckner is in the lineup. Could you tell then that there was something special going on here? Uh, yeah, there was something special going on there because we uh, Tom Lasorda had basically uh, uh, taking taken the nucleus of uh, players that he uh, his I think key to 
his success was that he could identify talent. And once he did, uh, and he kind of uh, put his arms around you. So we had, you know, uh, Bobby Valentine and Bill Buckner and, and myself and Tom Peshork, Bon Joshua, uh, Davey Lopes, uh, you know, the, the entire infield uh, was homegrown. Uh, we, uh, that's a, that's, it, it's so unique in so many different ways. Um, uh, we, we are by fact, the most successful infield in major league history, because there's really nothing to compare with eight and a half years of being together. Uh, when you look at every member being a, a multiple time all-star in the infield, uh, etching themselves into Dodger history at their positions, uh, four world series, world championship, uh, you know, we had, Cy Young Award winners, Rookies of the Year, MVPs, World Series MVPs, you name it. We had a great club. Uh, we, we, I felt bad that we uh, didn't win more often, but, you know, basically uh, that comes from a little bit of hindsight. Uh, but, you know, if you're going to tell me that, that uh, this group is going to play in four World Series and be world championships, uh, uh, be world champions, and that, all of you are going to be multiple time all-stars. I think we just said, we'll take it. Yeah. I'll uh, sign. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. so, yeah, it was a great group of guys really to work with. Uh, everybody understood the challenges and responsibilities uh, of being a Dodger and representing yourself and your friends and your family and the fan base that we had was terrific. Yeah. And it's, it's amazing because when you were coming in, when you were kind of working your way through the minors and even your first you know couple of years in the majors, Walter Alston is the manager who had taken over in the mid fifties and he manages right. for, I think, 23 years. So this is the guy who wins the world series with the Dodgers in 55. Uh, he's got Jackie Robinson on the roster, obviously guys like Duke Snyder, Sandy Koufax. I mean, just like this iconic franchise with this iconic manager and you're this young guy kind of coming along and he's still there. You know, a lot of times those guys are, you know, retired by the time, you know, the guys you watched growing up are retired when you're in the show and yet he's your manager for the first couple of years. What was he like? What was it like being around a guy like him before? Uh, great. Walt was great. Um, I had a lot of respect for Walt. Um, you know, he he took on a, uh, a new regime uh, of players. Uh, uh, you know, that Albuquerque club that we had in AAA. Uh, we, I think we had over 10 players off that roster make the big leagues. And uh, it was just a sensational a group of guys, uh, not only with their talents, but who they were. Uh, Walt, uh, you know, uh, when we graduated, Tom was sort of graduated, and uh, he became third base coach. And then four years later, he took over for Walt. Uh, Walt was, you know, a quiet, shy guy. Uh, but when he spoke, it's like the old E.F. Hutton commercials, if you're old enough to know those. It's like, what did he say? Yeah. <laughs> And I had a few really good conversations with him uh, behind closed doors uh, about things um, and uh, very fruitful all the way around. And uh, it helped me. I had a greater appreciation for him after, you know, we had uh, spoken in those uh, few cases. But uh, Tommy was very gregarious, outgoing, loved to hug his players, uh, complete opposite in personalities and uh, they were man they managed to both work and uh you know tommy uh, we owe we owed tommy a lot uh the group uh because he did nurture us he worked with us uh, drew lots of batting practice uh hit us ground balls 
uh, endlessly. Uh, you know, we worked from six in the morning till six at night. And, uh, you know, that was kind of pretty much standard stuff. There was always something else to do. Now, of course, it wasn't really six to six, but you understand that the work ethic was there. And we spent a lot of time off the field. And we spent a lot of time off the field together, too, which helped us bond together. And um, you, when you were in AAA, so Albuquerque became AAA for the Dodgers, but there was one year when you were in AAA, you were back in the state of Washington again in Spokane. Right. And you had Davey Lopes, as you mentioned, Doyle Alexander, Joe Ferguson, guys who you'd been coming up with, Tom Pachorek. You also had Hoyt Wilhelm on the roster, who was 48 years old at the time. Does that, do you remember that at all? Well, you know, yeah, I do. Uh, we were, we were, uh, uh, well, by the way, that uh, the other guys that were on that team were Jaeger and Ferguson, um, uh, Von Joshua, uh, Larry Heisel, um, yep. Bobby Darwin. Uh, we had a, yeah, we had a lot of guys that, you know, had successful careers. Uh, but uh, I think we we're in Salt Lake City and uh, uh, everybody kind of converged on the uh, the uh, hotel restaurant and uh, Tommy walked in and we had a bunch of guys sitting around. He says, you know, we got a we got a player that's going to join us today. You guys may have heard of him. And, uh, you know, it's like, OK, who's that? He says, Hoyt Wilhelm. And we all started laughing. And it's like, Hoyt Wilhelm's really going to come and uh, pitch for us. This is some kind of joke. <laughs> and he says, no, as a matter of fact, he said he'll be here tonight's game. And, uh, you know, uh, so we go to the park and we're, you know, kind of anxious to see if this is a prank or not. You know, I mean, we did a lot of those things, too. Sure. And, uh, you know, sure enough, uh, Uncle Hoyt, as we called him, uh, <laughs> walked in and uh, got to know him rather quickly. Real easygoing guy. Had a bunch of stories to tell. Uh, he was a pleasure to have. Uh, he actually got called up uh, along with myself and uh, Tom Pashork uh, and Mike Strawler, I think, uh, in September. And uh, Hoyt actually got to go and pitch uh, a, a little bit. But the rest of us, because we were in a pennant race, uh, pretty much just sat back and watched and enjoyed what we could. And, uh, it was a very, a very unique experience for me. Um, um, I had, uh, uh, I know that the very first game that uh, I suited up for, uh, I could hardly wait for the national anthem to uh, be over with, uh, because it then would be official that I'm making my first day in Major League Baseball. And I went into the to the hallway uh, uh, that led to the clubhouse and just, you know, did kind of a you know, a little bit of a victory dance and uh, went back and sat down and enjoyed the game. So, yeah, I uh, it was it was awesome. That's awesome. That's so cool. And before your before the iconic infield that you were, you know, a key part of for, you know, almost a decade before you guys came together, they had a pretty good infield. It was Wes Parker, Jim LaFay, Maury Wills and Dick Allen, Dick Allen playing third base. And and they also had Steve Garvey, who was, uh, you know, coming through the minor leagues also. And he was playing a lot of third base. At, at any point, is Walter Alston kind of pulling you aside saying, OK, we're going to be, you know, we're going to start moving some things around here. Or was that just something you were kind of, you know, kind of trying to navigate on your own? You know, Dick Allen and Steve Garvey and me. And how's this all going to work out? Uh, well, Dick Allen wasn't going to be playing third base. They just uh, plugged him in there for the moment. Um 
Uh, he was more of a first baseman, uh, but we had probably, in my opinion, uh, the greatest fielding first baseman in the history of baseball in Wes Parker. Uh, Jim Lefebvre was playing second, Maury Wills was playing short, and it was kind of a revolving door at third. And, uh, you know, once I got my opportunity, I felt like I would secure the position. And, uh, you know, eventually it came around to that. Uh, but um, uh, actually, the, the, the infield, uh, as it turned out to be Garvey, Lope, Russell, and myself, came by way of accident. Mm-hmm. And it's because of Monty Baskell, who uh, felt that uh, uh, he could convert Bill Russell a center fielder, Davey Lopes, a center fielder, into infielders. And they both ran really well. They had both had terrific arms. Um, and he felt that he could make the conversion. And so he worked real hard with them. And that was now, you know, pretty much a plan set in motion. And uh, Von Joshua actually was scheduled to be our, you know, left fielder rookie year. And Vaughn went down with an ankle injury uh, that cost him starting position. And Bill Buckner was playing first base. Garvey was without a position at that point in time. And uh, uh, I I believe it was Walt asked uh, Buck, who was a terrific athlete and a wide receiver in football, uh, if he could go back to left field and play there. Uh, it made sense because they had to find some place to play Garvey. Right. And so uh, by fault, in, in some senses, uh, Garvey got to go over to first base, and that was uh, the beginning. And then it was eight and a half years later when we broke up, and Davey Lopes was the first one to leave. And um, I can tell you that we, uh, we, we ruined a lot of minor leaguer minor leaguers careers as far as you know, wanting to be an infielder in the Dodger organization for the next 10 years, those kids who young people who were, were good enough to have the careers had to go find it elsewhere. You know, who wouldn't feel comfortable as a manager, uh, you know, having, you know, a group of guys that's, you know, they're going to play every day for you. And uh, not like today's game where they play in 125, 30 games, we were playing in 150. And we were grinding it, and we had to grind because yep. only winners moved forward back then. And uh, we had the big red machine to compete with. And when you're talking about Bench, Perez, Morgan, Concepcion, Rose, Foster, Geronimo, and Griffey, uh, <laughs> you better be playing every day because you can't afford to take a day off. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's just unbelievable to think that, like at that time, just the talent on on your team on the on those Reds teams, on those A's teams, which were winning three straight World Series. I mean, you look at some of those, obviously the Yankees teams that kind of came together much through free agency, just insane talent. Yeah, we had a great, uh, a great decade uh, there. You know, uh, Baltimore, I think, started out in the 70s uh, with a roar. Uh, You know, then came the uh, Oakland, uh, you know, Kansas City started playing better. Uh, The Reds and the Dodgers, the Yankees. Um, it was a very exciting period of time. I mean, those teams were the dominant teams, even the Pirates. You, know, you got to throw the Pirates and the Phillies in there, too. Yep. Uh, those are games that we beat on our way to the World Series. But, uh, you know, the Phillies had, uh, you know, a terrific nucleus of players. You know, uh, uh, 
you know, they, they had uh, Schmitty and Boone and Boa and, and uh, Luzinski and Carlton and Doug McGraw and others. Um, I hope I didn't forget anybody. Please forgive me if I did. Um, but yeah, it was great competing against them and the Pirates uh, turned, uh, went from the uh, Pittsburgh Lumber Company to a team with speed. Uh, later on, uh, through Chuck Tanner in the 1979, he was a manager that uh, kind of changed uh, the the way that people look at baseball with the with the thought in mind of uh, not trying to embarrass anybody. Uh, you know, when you're four or five, six runs ahead, you know, people usually don't start stealing bases. And uh, Chuck Tanner came out at at the uh, I think the end of spring training and said, I hope I'm not going to offend anybody, but this is how we're going to play baseball from here on out because I don't have a bunch of guys who can hit three run homers. So if I'm stealing six, if I'm stealing uh, when we're ahead four or five runs, uh, it's because I know you guys can catch us faster than we can generate runs. And if I'm stealing when we're five or six runs, I hope you don't mind that either. When we're down five runs, I hope you don't mind that either. So it, it changed kind of the complexion of it, and it, and it kind of take, made us take another look at, you know, hey, this is the way he had to manage the club, you know, and he's right, and it's okay. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. I've spoken with both Burp Lilev and, and Bill Madlock, who were both obviously key parts of that team, and they raved about uh, Chuck as manager. You know, it, just the way he approached the game and his substitution patterns and, yeah, the way he just kind of adjusted because he had to. Well, yeah, I mean, he would be uh, an easy manager to play for. He's he's a, he, he was a player's manager. Yeah, for sure. Um, and so, and I'm also intrigued. Right when you're you know starting to come up, Frank Robinson is is you know he's he's obviously been a star for the Reds, star for the, for the Orioles, and for a short period of time, he's in Los Angeles. Did you have a lot of overlap with him? Were you able to you know kind of get to know him at all? I had a lot of overlap with Frank. Uh, I played for Frank in San Jersey in the uh, Puerto Rican Winter League. Uh, we were the uh, uh, champions of uh, Puerto Rico. We played in the Caribbean World Series in Caracas. Uh, I was the all-star third baseman in that league. And we had uh, we had Elrod Hendricks and uh, Tony Perez, uh, Juan Benicas, who was the Boston shortstop at that time. Uh, Juan Pizarro, Doyle Alexander, Rogelio Moret, Bob uh, um, Bob Reynolds, who was the uh, 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 the closer for the Orioles back then. We had Don Baylor, Willie Crawford, Ron Woods, who was the center fielder for Montreal. Uh, we had an outstanding team, and uh, uh, we ended up coming in second place in the Caribbean World Series. And the team from Losay, which was managed by uh, Lasorda in the Dominican Republic, won the uh, Caribbean Series. So. Huh. Yeah, that was fun playing at Caracas when you've got the manager of Lasay, uh, Lasorda, and I'm uh, playing third base, and every ball that's hit to me is saying "boot it, boot it, boot it." <laughs> <laughs> so it was kind of comical, you know. And uh, I was talking back and forth in pretty much the whole game. <laughs> that's great. That's awesome. Um, was that that was when you were like coming through the minors, like in Albuquerque and Spokane? That was my last stop, nineteen seventy-two. Uh, and you know, and oh, by the way, obviously we have been and we will be talking about you know the infield and the, you know the outfield and et cetera of the Dodgers. The pitching has just always the entire time you were there, the pitching was insane. I mean, back then you had Don Sutton, Claude Austin's winning twenty games, Tommy John. Um, talk a little bit about the the Dodgers pitching. You know, it, when it, when you were kind of coming up. 
Rick Roden, Rick Sutcliffe, Bobby Welsh, Jerry uh, Royce, Bert Hooten, Fernando, uh, 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 Fernando. Um, uh, I, I know I'm going to uh, forget a few. Mike Marshall won the Cy Young Award with us. Doug Rao. Yeah, we had uh, a ton of guys. And, you know, the interesting thing about that is it's that um, back in those days, uh, we had an earned run average for a staff two different years was under three. Under three. Amazing. Under three for an entire staff. Right. Uh, that's unheard of. Uh, normally, and in particular in today's game, but of course the game has changed dramatically, uh, you know, you don't have too many guys that have earned run averages below three. There's a handful, but not, you know, as many as there used to be. Sure. And so therefore, yeah, our pitching was our bread and butter. Uh, but we also brought, when we had this new nucleus of players that were going to represent the Dodgers for the next 10 years, uh, we brought a more offensive club to the plate, literally speaking. And uh, we did score runs. We had a power club. We were the first team in Major League history to have a 30 home run force in, in uh, Reggie Smith, Dusty Baker, Steve Garvey, and myself. And, uh, uh, you know, we were, the, the, it's been done, but a handful of times since. And, uh, you know, the, the beauty of that is that we were the first ones to do it. Right. It took a hundred years <laughs> to get that first foursome and you guys were it. Um, yeah. So, so when you, when you get up to the majors and I, and I guess the, the first thing that popped out when I was, you know, it's kind of looking over your numbers, basically from your first full year, 73 through basically the last, maybe like the second to last year of your career, every single season, you played a minimum of 145, 150, oftentimes 158, 159 games. Um, obviously you have to avoid injury. You did. Um, but also you have to play hurt because there's no way anybody makes it through six months without being dinged up. Talk a little bit about that mindset. Um, I was durable. Uh, I didn't get hurt. Uh, I worked uh, incredibly hard in the off season. I would say a six and a half day a week guy. Uh, I didn't take a whole lot of time off. Uh, I pretty much punished myself. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I was uh, preparing myself for the rigors of the up and coming season. And um, I uh, wasn't going to allow uh, my career to take uh, a dive by not working hard enough. And uh, that's the last thing I uh, wanted to have happen. Uh, and it didn't. And so I had a very durable career. Uh, I was the top ranked player on our club uh, by war, uh, six of the 10 years that I was there. Um, I am the number one ranked Los Angeles Dodger infielder of all time. And I don't think too many people know that. It's almost like a secret. But war is a very integral part of uh, Major League Baseball today. And as a matter of fact, to show the importance of war, uh, it's even part of the basic agreement today. So um, uh, they're all new metrics. Not everybody is thrilled with all the metrics, but here with us to stay until there's a better method. Right. And, and you know, it should also be pointed out um, on the stats when you retired, I think I have this right. You were the fourth. You were you were the number four all time third baseman in terms of home runs. Okay, I had Mike Schmidt, uh, Eddie Matthews, and Ron Santo. It's the four or five. 
yeah, but yeah, I was in the top like twelfth, top ten for you know games played, assists, whatever. Um, never really got any uh, real credit from the Hall of Fame for any of that. Uh, and uh, looking at what has happened here recently uh, with Ted Simmons, uh, and certainly Ted Simmons was a guy that that uh, came along uh, in baseball at the same time that uh, that I did. Uh, he was one of those players that, uh, that uh, everybody had been talking about, along with Don Baylor and Bobby Gritch, uh, another player who hasn't got nearly the credit that he deserved and take and needs to t- the, the executive committee of the Hall of Fame needs to take another look at quite a few players. And so with man, Bobby Gritch would be up there for me. I think Dwight Evans would be there. Scott Rowland. Um, um, there's a lot of guys who have had better years. Uh, they would be more valuable in today's game than they were their own. Sure. And so since Ted Simmons and I, uh, have, uh, very relative numbers, uh, my, my war is a little bit higher than, than his. Uh, so, you know, I'm kind of hoping, uh, I don't know exactly how it's going to happen yet, uh, but, uh, they gave me absolutely zero consideration and, uh, I was worth more than that. A lot more than that. Yeah. Yeah. It seems that, you know, it's, it's, so it's funny. I interviewed Dale Murphy, uh, a couple of weeks ago and, and he's another example. Yeah. I mean, in the, in the decade of the 1980s, nobody had more hits or RBIs and he had the second most number of home runs. And you just think like, how can these, you know, the people who are making these decisions, they're comparing apples and oranges. You know, the, 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 you know, the 60s and 70s were different. The 80s were different than what we see today. You know, you went decades without anybody hitting 50 home runs. So you, you can't look at the numbers the same way. It's absurd. Well, no, you can't. And it's just like, you know, where it's gone with pitching. You know, you've seen your last 300 game winner. Yep. And so, you know, is that going to be a standard? Uh, no, I don't think so. You're going to have to drop the numbers down, right? right. Exactly. Uh, it makes sense because, you know, you're having pitchers now that uh, aren't, aren't throwing many complete game wins. Uh, they're pitching five, six innings. Uh, uh, and we all stand, understand the reasons behind that. But, um, you know, still, the numbers aren't going to get there. The metrics will tell you that the front offices don't care about wins. It's the other things that they care about. And if I'm a pitcher still in today, I want to win behind my name when I go out there. Uh, I, the whole game is upside down. You know, it's a strikeout home run game today. Uh, pretty soon, the hit and run is going to be obsolete. Uh, you know, we don't steal too many bases uh, anymore. We don't move runners over. Uh, they don't like to steal bases because they're afraid guys are going to get thrown out. And they don't want that to happen. They want the guys to swing the bat. And as you've seen, there's a number of different lineups throughout the league that, you know, a lot of these guys uh, in the lineup hit a lot of home runs. So uh, that's it. And, uh, you know, it's the launch angle and it's the velocity and it's this and that and whatever. And, uh, you know, the fan uh, has a tough time trying to understand the metrics. Uh, it's because they haven't done a very good job of educating them on that. But the game that they grew up, especially the older crowd, uh that, uh, you know, could strategize, understand, appreciate, love, uh, doesn't exist anymore. Not in the same way. Uh, there, you know, guys 
guys don't have a problem striking out 150, 60, 70 times, hitting 25 home runs, hitting, you know, 200. Right. And I got to tell you that, 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 you know, doesn't work very well for me. Yeah. Uh, and I think, uh, candidly speaking, I, I, I feel confident that um, if we played the type of baseball that we did in today's baseball, I think we'd drive these guys nuts. Right. Yeah, exactly. Um, you know, and, and uh, in, in 74, so, so just so you know, I, I looked it up, the, the exact date that that infield, your infield came together for the first time, April 13th, 1973. That was the day you four. Yeah. Um, and I think the last time you guys were together was game six of the 81 World Series. That's absolutely correct. That's Davey Lopes' last uh, game as a Dodger. Uh, the first four hitters in the lineup that night when we won the World Series were the infielders. Yeah. You, Davey Lopes, Paul Russell, great. Steve Garvey, and myself. And I actually came back from getting beaned uh, in game five. Uh, I, today's protocol would have kept me on the shelf. Yeah. Uh, but it was my call. I was able to make it, but I had a concussion and I felt it, but um, it was my call and it sort of left the fourth spot open uh, that night, not knowing whether I would be able to play or not, but um, I was, and I got two hits and drove in the game winning run and came out of the game, I think in the sixth inning, because I was getting lightheaded and dizzy. And uh, we were up substantially at that point in time. And uh, so I just said, I'm not going to have anything happen negatively on my watch uh, at my position. So I felt comfortable turning it over. I think Daryl Thomas was the one who took it over for me. And then we uh, cruised along to the bottom of the ninth and the fly ball goes up center field into the hands of Kenny Landro. And we bring the World Series championship back to Los Angeles. Yeah. That's uh, so cool. Yeah. And, and I, the, in game five, when Gossage hit you, um, it was, I mean, it was, it was, you know, horrible to watch. Um, but I, my understanding is he and Bob Lemon came in to try to find you afterwards. Correct. They came into the clubhouse. I, I had known Goose. I played with them uh, in, in winter ball in Puerto Rico. Uh, okay. They played uh, for Ponte. He and Terry Forrester actually, and the Cruz brothers. Uh, good league, tough league. Uh, but yes, Bob Lemon and, and Goose came over uh, afterwards to check on me. I was grateful for that. I was wearing this ice turban, you know, on my head. And uh, uh, I went to uh, Sentinel Hospital afterwards and had the MRI and the CAT scan and everything else done. And then I was released. Go home. I uh, had to come back the next morning. Team had already gone to New York. Uh, I was waiting for clearance, and since the, uh, the the final decision was left up to me, I'm on the plane. <laughs> <laughs> and and wasn't there wasn't it? I, I can't remember if it was cold or rain or whatever it was, but the game was delayed a day, which was probably gold for you, right? It just bought you a little bit more time. I, I had trouble uh, that day, uh, the first first day in, and. Uh, I remember my wife was out and I was in the room and the phone was on the other side of the bed and I tried to roll over to uh, get the phone. And when I answered it, I was almost blacking out. 
I did not know who was on the other end, but it was at that moment I was going to say either hello or call the doctor because uh, I was going to pass out and I didn't know what was going on. So I was able to recover in that moment, uh, but I need I needed it was helpful. I remember I had uh, two interviews that day that I had to do. One was with uh, Howard Cosell and one was uh, with Jim Hill. Uh, they both went well, but it was uh, kind of a relief to get uh, one more day. Yeah. And then, and then, like you said, so you bet cleanup in game six, you go two for three, you have the game winning RBI. I think you score a run too. Yeah. Yeah. I've scored uh, actually the, uh, the inning that we broke it open, uh, uh, Dusty Baker got a, a base hit to right center field and I've gone first third. And uh, during that run, I got a little busy. And then Guerrero uh, uh, hit a triple to the gap and uh, scored us both. And uh, I just was a little fuzzy. And as a matter of fact, fuzzy, uh, when I went out that half inning, uh, the last out was a little humpback liner hit to me and it came at me like a fuzzy tennis ball. And uh, so I said, you know what? This is, uh, this is the sign that uh, uh, is going to, make me depart this game. I don't want anything to happen. So I went to Lasorda, told him what was going on, totally understood. And uh, we went from there. So it was uh, smooth sailing uh, after that, thankfully. Yeah, that's great. Um, and if, if I can go back for a second, back to uh, in 74, when you guys went to the series the first time you played Oakland, that dynasty, and uh, they had the Dodgers traded Willie Davis, who was one of your you know kind of key outfielders, from Mike Marshall, the reliever. Um, and he appeared in 106 games that year. Uh, he, he wins 15 games. He loses 12. He's got like 20 plus saves was, I mean, when, when you guys are like, you know, kind of watching that, are you thinking, Oh my God, what are we doing here? This is incredible. This guy's appearing almost every night. Well, you know, he, he was a professor in kinesiology at Michigan state and uh, he never came to spring training on time uh, because he was, of his teaching duties. Uh, nobody was concerned about it because Mike, Mike threw, he knew, he knew all the dynamics of, 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 of the arm motion and the fundamentals of everything. Uh, nobody was concerned about it, but ask anybody to pitch, you know, in 106 games. And a lot of those, you know, that just wasn't, we didn't have the term closer yet. Back you know, he was the guy who just kind of finished our game. And uh, uh, I used to play catch with him in spring training. And I don't know how many times he hit me, hit me with, with balls that were, he, he would never tell me what's coming. And he'd hit me in the ankles and <laughs> throw a ball. It was, it was, I, I had a license, just, just throw me the ball, bro. I, you know, I'm not worried about, you know, I, I don't want to have to worry about getting hit in the ankle anymore. Right. But the other thing that he did, he was a clubhouse prankster too. And he, uh, he, during a game, he had a big old wad of chew when chew was okay back then. And uh, he could, uh, he could, uh, uh, he could hit your uh, shoe tops with those white brand new laces on your shoes from about 10 feet away. And he would just splat you. He flat all the guys on the bench just about, you know, it was funny, but, you know, uh, the clubhouse guys had to bring us some new, uh, new chew strings quite a bit. <laughs> that's pretty funny. Um, that's great. Um, and and then uh, I'm, I'm curious, in 76, Rick Monday is not on your team yet. He's with the Cubs. 
but you guys are playing a game at, uh, at Dodger stadium and he's with the Cubs. He's in the outfield. And I think two guys, I think it was a father and a son hop over the fence and start to burn an American flag. And Rick Monday, you know, just kind of sprints from wherever he was, I guess, center field and grabs it from him. Do you remember, like, I mean, it's become kind of this iconic moment, but in the, in the moment, do you remember that? Or was that just one of the things? Yeah. Yeah. It's good. But yeah, he, uh, there were two kids on the field. We didn't know uh, who, who they were exactly, uh, but they were kneeling down in like left center field. And there was something on the, uh, on the grass and uh, they had, you know, looked like they were starting to, you know, light it. And, uh, Rick certainly had a, a, a more clear look at it than we did because uh, I was in the uh, uh, on the bench and looking at probably ground level uh, and I couldn't see anything really that was going on but he did and he went over and he uh, swept it up and uh, still to this day he's uh, collecting accolades for that. Yeah, it's amazing. I mean, it's 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 like just one of those like kind of. I, I saw a T-shirt online about it, um, not that long ago. Um, and then and then that year, you guys trade for you bring in Dusty Baker, right. and um, and that leads to the next year, as you pointed out earlier, you and Steve Garvey and Dusty and Reggie Smith become the first foursome ever to hit thirty home runs each. You know, on on one roster. Um, obviously dusty in the news in the last couple of months, having, you know, won his first world series as a manager, what did he bring to the team? What was it like bringing him in? Well, dusty was a good player. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, you know, he, he, uh, he played very well for us. Um, uh, bake as a matter of fact, uh, uh, got the attention of the, uh, Dodger fans in the left field pavilion to where they named it Bakersfield. <laughs> and uh, Dusty actually uh, was the last one to hit 30 home runs. And he was the uh, 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 <laughs> player that had to face James Rodney Richards for trying to accomplish this feat on the last game of the year. Oh, is that right? Yes. And uh, we had actually taken a picture that is probably the one that you see most of the time that has the Dodger uh, a scoreboard uh, uh, message board behind it. It says 30, 30 on it uh, with uh, uh, the four of us and uh, I'm kneeling. And uh, <laughs> we took that picture before it happened. You're kidding. Yeah, we took it before it happened. He just, and, he just knew or you guys knew? Well, uh, well, it was good karma, I guess. Uh, something, you know, would... And now, you know, we are as talking about good karma. Uh, I don't know how many right-handed hitters hit home runs off J.R. Richards, but if you did, it was it was something special. Yeah. But Reggie Smith uh, and J.R. had, you know, a relationship good enough to where uh, Reggie told J.R. before the game that Dusty was going to hit a home run off. And uh, they just laughed it off. And now we're in the bottom of the ninth, and it just so happens that Dusty's got one more shot. He's actually going to hit this inning. And, uh, you know, it was like, oh, well, you know, I mean, this is a great try, you know, really, I mean, fantastic. Even if it doesn't happen, you know, it's, it's still great. But he does it. 
And uh, I'm not so sure I could have done that. I would have probably talked myself out of it. <laughs> he was, uh, he, he made it happen. Uh, so he was the, uh, the last link to that. And, uh, you know, there's, there, as, as you might expect, there's a story behind it. That's amazing. I, I did not realize it came down to the ninth inning of the last game and J.R. Richards on the mound. That's crazy. Yeah, bottom of the ninth, 162. Uh, and, and it just so happens that the lineup came around to where Dusty was going to hit one more time. Oh, that's amazing. Tommy was the manager in 77 and, uh, you know, we, uh, we broke him in well, uh, went to the world series in 77, 78, uh, went again in 81. Uh, but Frank Sinatra, who was a, uh, big Dodger fan, uh, you know, had agreed, uh, to sing the national anthem, uh, that day to start Tommy's career off in high fashion. And uh, we won that game and uh, we won on a tear and I went on a tear uh, for April, 1977. I had the uh, best month in Dodger history period uh, uh, from all. You had like nine home runs, right? Well, we only played 20 games because we had we didn't play from start to finish back then. We started about April 10th, so we only played 20 games. Uh, I set a major league record for runs batted in in the month of April, 29 and 20 games. That's a that's a pretty much a 45 RBI regular month. Yeah, a uh, huge month, and that's why it is the number one ranked uh, month all time for the Dodgers. Um, it was a great start for me, but a lot of guys had terrific starts as well we went out 17 and three we'd never looked back and back then in the o'malley ownership uh what the rewards for the people in the office got was that every day that the dodgers were in first place everybody got free ice cream <laughs> and so for the entire year after the first week of the season all the employees had ice cream every single office <laughs> imagine in 1981 looking forward so this is the this is the strike year yes and uh you guys overall you're you're 63 and 41 you win the division it, you know for the listener who might not remember they had a, a first half of the season a second half of the season with a strike in between and so there was an extra round of playoffs and what i found fascinating about that one was you guys, when you're playing Houston in the first round, you go down two games to nothing, come back to win 3-2. You go down two games to one against Montreal, you come back and win three games to two. And then you're playing the Yankees and, you know, who have beaten you twice, you know, kind of a few years earlier. You go down two games to nothing to them, come back and win and win four straight to, you know, to, to win the series and, and in your case become MVP. Was it was was that was it that kind of team all year where you guys were battling back, or was that just kind of a postseason run that you went on where you were doing the you know playing the comebacks? Uh, we were a team of destiny, I guess you could say, uh, yeah. as far as the playoffs were concerned. You know, it was about time for things to turn in our direction. You know, we came out feisty, I think. Uh, you know, Gidry, uh, I can't remember if Gidry pitched the first game or the second game, but uh, you know, he was he was tough on us. Um, then we go back to Los Angeles and, you know, and we regain things again, you know, so we got some life and, uh, in game three, I was fortunate to, uh, uh hit a 
three-run home run in the first inning that gave us a boost. And uh, the Yankees fought back, as you would expect, and actually took the lead. Uh, we regained the lead, and then there was a, a big defensive play that came up uh, that I made and turned into a double play that got us out of a jam. Uh, Fernando had a complete game, but it was really pretty ugly. Uh, I think he walked seven guys, gave up four runs, nine hits. There were a lot of base runners. Uh, you know, we were, we were, we were, <laughs> we were in trouble just about the whole game, but we managed to win and we won all, uh, we won three one run games at Dodger stadium, all exciting games. And, uh, the only game that was a blowout was, uh, the final game, which we won nine to two. Which worked out perfectly. And that was special too, by the way, winning in the Yankees. You know, anytime you play the Yankees who have, there's no question as to who has the greatest history and tradition in baseball. You, we could play another hundred years and it may not change uh, because of so far how did they, that they are. But, uh, you know, there was a, a Yankee stadium was, it was always a uh, revered place uh, with all the great players, uh, the history and tradition of it, uh, special to win there. Yeah. And it must, must've been especially so, for you know, for guys, you know anybody who played before, whenever it was, we went to interleague or interleague, because unless you played them in the postseason or made an all-star team, the one time you know they would have it every two decades, you didn't get to play there. I mean, there's a you know a ton of guys who you would have played with who never, you know, not with the Dodgers, but with other teams who probably never set foot in the place. Yeah, and there's also a whole lot of really good players that never made it to the World Series either. Right, and so you know that I know. Uh, is uh, one of those things that uh, they wish they had in their back pocket. Yeah. Yep, for sure. And then, as we talked about earlier, that you know, I guess one way to put it is all good things come to an end. Steve Sachs is coming along, and the team decides to is is Lopes traded to Oakland, or does I think so? Yeah, I believe he was traded in January of eighty uh, two. Okay. And, uh, you know, Steve Sachs was the heir apparent, and uh, he was ready to play. Right. Uh, and, and they had a new nucleus of players that they thought were going to be the ones that, you know, basically replaced us and do kind of what we did. And uh, I think that wish got a little bit out of whack. Uh, the The rest of us uh, uh, played another year together. Right. And so, you know, the, we're still the same old characters. And uh, then the, the year after that, Garvey and I left. Gotcha. Okay. And then and then Dallas Green, who has won a World Series with the Phillies in 80, he's now running the Cubs organization, and he wants to bring you in. And so you go over to the Cubs, and it's interesting because with the Dodgers, you have this homegrown team. You got, you know, a ton of you were together in the minors and coming up through your early years in the majors. And then you get to the Cubs, and it's just interesting. You've got Buckner at first, you've got you, Larry Boa, you know, a bunch of guys who were established stars from other teams. Obviously, there were a couple of homegrown guys, you know, Ryan Sandberg was there. Um, but you come into Chicago, and in your in your second year there. You guys, you guys uh, win the National League East. It's it's a pretty exciting pennant race. Um, Sutcliffe has come in. Okay, goes sixteen and one. Eckersley comes in. Scott Sanderson comes in. Tell me a little bit about that because obviously it's a different experience. You're you know you're in your second year with the Cubs, but this is a team that's just starved to go to the postseason. What was it like being an experienced you know guy with a winning record? 
a new challenge uh, for sure. Um, you know, most of the time, Cub fans seem to have a good time at the ball game, regardless of whether they win or lose. Right. And now, you know, we turned uh, the lights on for them. And now you're actually got a team that's going to win. And I rolled the dice with Dallas. Um, he had promised me, uh, and, he, and he basically backed it up. He said, I'm going to make a number of moves here early. Uh, I'm going to try to make this team good as fast as I can. <clears throat> I was part of the conversation that brought Sutcliffe to the Cubs. Uh, he called me and uh, asked me <clears throat> if uh, I could uh, 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 tell him more about Sutcliffe. He says, I got a chance to get Sutcliffe. What do you think? And I said, uh, the guy's a bulldog. He won 17 games as a rookie for us. Um, he uh, is a guy that's going to give you the innings. He's a good athlete. He can swing the bat. Uh, if you got a chance to get him, go get him. Yeah. Uh, he made me look good. 16-1, uh, he wins the Cy Young Award. Uh, yeah. Davey Lopes, uh, we have a chance to get Davey Lopes. He call, Dallas calls me again. He says, I have a a chance to get another one of your teammates. And I said, yeah, who's that? Davey Lope. Let's go, go, go get him. He can, he's, he can play second. He can play third. He can play in the outfield he can pinch run. He can pinch it. Perfect. utility guy at this point. Yep. And uh, so he went and got it and Davey, you know, filled in, played a few years there, did a really good job for us. Uh, so I was pleased that, you know, Dallas had entrusted me with some of the decisions uh, that were beneficial to our, our club's success. Uh, he made the right moves. And, uh, you know, we, uh, we were able to, you know, capitalize on, on a hurry. So in a hurry. So, you know, as far as I'm concerned, you know, Dallas, you know, I, I, he, he managed the Phillies while I was playing. I had a relationship with him, uh, which was all good. It turned out to be the best place that I could go because my wife was from Chicago. And uh, uh, they were Southsiders. And uh, so we turned them into Cub fans uh, <laughs> immediately. Uh, but yeah, it was, uh, it was, it was a good thing. I, I was happy that the transition worked out as well as it did. Um, you know, we brought a lot of life and new baseball to the fans in Chicago. Uh, we rejuvenated it. Uh, I still feel badly about not being able to, uh, uh, you know, bring that uh, city, uh, you know, uh, at least a World Series appearance. Sure. Uh, um, but uh, it, you know, it was a, a it was a big step forward, and uh, we set we set Chicago on fire. We really did. It was a lot of fun. And then 1985 fell apart in the summer. Uh, we lost our entire rotation in five weeks. And we couldn't, we couldn't, uh, yeah, Sutcliffe went down, Ruthven, Sanderson, Trout, um, all went down. And uh, that, that was it. Just, uh, we, we could not, could not replace them. Uh, it became a real burden. And so, you know, we did not finish well in that point. Yeah. And in your last year in Chicago in 86, there's a 20 year old rookie who comes up, I think towards the end of the season, Greg Maddox. Now, obviously, you're you're in your last year with Chicago. 
do you re- you know do you remember like kind of watching him his his numbers were very kind of average he was like two and two or something but did you look at him and go wow this guy's got something or was he too young to know at the time uh he was one of their top prospects uh uh, uh but you know we also had you know uh joe carter mm-hmm. um 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 rafael palmero yeah. uh, uh when i saw palmero play in the spring you know, you have a bunch of fields that are back to back, so you can watch a number of games at the same time. You know, if you're standing in the center, and uh, I used to, you know, watch Raphael hit, and uh, this this kid had a great stroke. You know, he was he just man, he 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 was making hard contact on all pitches, hitting, hitting bullets everywhere. Um. Wow. Well, I. I... Just a, a couple last questions for you. you. You go to Oakland for your last year um, and you're in the same locker room with a guy like Reggie Jackson. You're also with Eckersley and, and Dave Stewart, again, guys who you'd been teammates with. Right. And that team, it, this is obviously the end of your career, but that team would go on to a couple World Series appearances and, and a title. Could you see that, you know, that they had something going there? And oh, also, yeah. yeah, I mean, look, you had Ken Seiko and McGuire there. We're just getting, you know. And I, uh, actually, in 87 was uh, McGuire's rookie year. Uh, Tony Larissa uh, called me over the winter once the trade had been made, and he uh, asked me to bring a first baseman's glove uh, to spring training. He felt that I was going to be able to uh, play quite a bit of first base there, plus spell Carney Lansford at third and be the uh, right-handed DH. And... Uh, you know, it was an opportunity. He he said that he saw that you know might be in the neighborhood of about 120 games. So you know that was probably the best scenario that I was going to see. And uh, you know, look, I'm 39 years old now, and uh, I'm going to be 40 and uh, soon. And and uh, Tony said, uh, I said first base. I said, you're serious. He says, listen. He says you played. You played 15 years in the big leagues at third base. You can play first base. Trust me. <laughs> so I, I, you know, I got, I got a first base with love. And then Jim Lefever, who was an ex Dodger, uh, 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 he uh, started working with me every day at first base. Uh, didn't need to do a whole lot at third, uh, but it was a real transition for me. Uh, I wasn't totally comfortable with it. You know, who could be? And, you know, you're not playing as much as you used to now you're playing a different position plus you're 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 asked to be a dh which i know nothing about and, and you're in a different league so right. it was just the idea of you know my routine you know how how do i prepare in between innings when you're a dh you know you don't go you don't get to leave that gap behind and go play defense uh and then come in and sit and wait for your spot again uh you're kind of deliberating the whole time. So I would be, you know, up in the clubhouse swinging the bat. I would be riding the bike. I would uh, trying to be, you know, stretching out. Uh, and that seemed like, you know, just such an ordeal all the time. Uh, couldn't couldn't really get comfortable with it. And you know, I had a few moments, uh, but at the uh, at the break in July, uh, they decided to release me and. Um, you know, of course, I was disappointed, but you know, I it really, you know, it it it, it, it made sense. You know, I was taking up a spot. I'm at the end of my career, uh, 
you know, Mark McGuire ends up hitting 33 home runs by all-star break. So there's really no chance for me to play any more than I'm going to. Uh, and ends up hitting, you know, 49 home runs. And, you know, then the rest of it, you know, happens. But, uh, you know, uh, having, you know, Ken Seiko and McGuire were, were two guys on one team uh, that hit the ball further than anybody I've ever seen until I started watching Giancarlo Stanton. Okay. And Stanton hits the ball further than anybody I've ever seen. He, uh, I, I saw, he's the only, I made, I, I made a, uh, 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 a commitment to stop whatever I was doing when the Marlins were in town. And, uh, uh, I said, I got to go watch the Marlins batting practice and it never, uh, never disappointed me. Yeah. He was the balls out of the stadium, you know, and, uh, they were like disintegrating aspirin tablet, get out there and they just kind of disappeared. Right. And they weren't hitting the ten. I've been I've been around for balls that have been hit up on the ten. I know what that sounds like. Uh, I, I I saw Willie Stargell's home run, and I couldn't find that ball either. But when I heard this clank on the uh, ten roof in right field, uh, then I said, "Well, I guess the ball out of the park." <laughs> out of the park. And uh, Stanton was clearing the uh, pavilion. Oh, was he really? Oh my God! Oh yeah, there was no clank. Um, well, and that actually brings me to, to my last question. I'm, I'm always fascinated, you know, talking to a guy like you, who were the, who was the pitcher or the pitchers who, for whatever reason, just had your number. I mean, obviously you put up terrific numbers for, you know, a decade and a half. But we don't have enough time there from A to Z. There's, you know, thousands of guys out there that I look at and I'm saying, that's all I did. That's <laughs> this guy. Uh, the guy that gave me the most trouble, and it, statistically it won't match uh, because it's a uh, the style, uh, was Kent Colby. Oh, sure. And I did not like, you know, him throwing off his shoe tops at 6'5", and uh, his ball had a lot of action on it and uh, just never got comfortable. And I moved around in the box more on him than I did anybody else in my career. I moved up, I moved back, I moved in on the plate, it moved back off the plate, didn't seem to matter. Uh, I remember wrapping a, a, a breaking ball slider over the top of the flagpole in the second deck in Pittsburgh that went foul. And that's the last time I ever saw that pit. And the rest of them, you know, may have been broken bat singles here or there, but I really don't remember hitting them well. But the most important thing out of that whole thing was that I just never got comfortable stepping in the box again. Couldn't, couldn't, get, couldn't get any any real good feeling about, I'm going to get him this time. Right. Uh, it didn't happen. I, I always went in there with some kind of a distraction. Right. Yeah, interesting. And and at the very beginning of your career was the very end of Bob Gibson's career. Right. What was, what was your take on on going up against him? I had a few moments against Bob Gibson. Uh, okay. He also had a few moments against me. I had my most embarrassing at bat in my big league career off Bob Gibson. Uh, it was in St. Louis, and uh, he took it took three pitches for him to strike me out. And the last one, I tried to make a check swing, and the bat came around me like a hula hoop. And it ended up going around me and ended up being straight down at the bottom of my feet. And in this split second, 
I'm saying, was it a strike? Did I swing? Uh, I think I better pick up my bat and walk to the dugout. And <laughs> when I walked to the dugout, St. Louis had an incline on the stairs. It's pretty steep. And I saw half my teammates on the floor laughing at me <laughs> when I came back in. And so that was a, a, a reckoning. Uh, but I did, uh, I chased him uh, one game with a basis loaded double. And if you know Bob's demeanor, uh, he doesn't take kindly to that. And so I just stood at second base and stared out at center field until they came out and get him and got him off the field. And another time I beat him with a two-run home run late in the game in St. Louis. And I got around the bases as quickly as I could. So <laughs> he, uh, uh, those, those guys back then did not like to be shown up. And if you did, uh, your next plate appearance, you're going down. Right. Simple as that. Amazing. God, look, look Ron, I got to tell you, these stories are awesome. It's just so cool hearing the stories about coming up through the Dodgers organization, obviously all those winning years, the, the MVP, you know, of the 81 world series, uh, the iconic infield, um, you know, helping the Cubs get to the playoffs for the first time in 40 years. It's just so fascinating here. Hearing all these stories. Can't thank you enough for taking the time to come on chasing hardware. Yeah, you bet. It's no problem. I enjoyed it. I, uh, you know, I feel grateful for, uh, all the things that I was able to, uh, accomplish and and just to leave you with one note uh when i was growing up i was uh uh in a baseball tournament when i was 16 years old and uh one of the people that was covering the event uh, decided to write an article on me and uh it was basically entitled you know could this be the next ron santo ron santo grew up in seattle i grew up in tacoma he played third base. I played third base. Both have the same first name, and we uh, both wear number 10. And uh, I had, a few years later after this transpired, uh, I was named the state's minor league player of the year. And I was asked to go up to Seattle to receive this award in the offseason. And the person who that presented me with the trophy was Ron Panto. I go to Chicago, uh, my very first game in Chicago. Uh, I don't know if it took place this day, but certainly close to it. Uh, my very first day in Chicago and Wrigley Field, uh, behind the batting cage, there's a picture of Santo on this side and, and me on this side. And we're turned back this way, looking this way, both number 10, both Ron, whatever. And that was the start of a, 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 our relationship. And in this game, my first at bat in Chicago, Wrigley Field, I'm facing Ferguson Jenkins. And I hit a home run on the way from Avenue. And uh, later on, I am traded to the Cubs, and Santo is working in the uh, radio booth. Uh, after I leave Chicago and start working for the Dodgers again, uh, Anytime the Cubs came to Chicago or came to Los Angeles, I would go up and visit with him, reminisce. And uh, essentially, I did uh, become the next Ron Santo. And if you look at our careers, if you were to take the names away and do our yearly averages, you can interchange them. And you're going you're gonna to ask which one was which. Right. He is in the, he is in the Hall of Fame posthumously. Uh, I did not get a smell. 
of that. I'd like for somebody to explain that to me. Yeah. Uh, as you mentioned, uh, Santo and I were ranked, you know, three, four or four, five when I retired. So I came as close as I could to living up to that. Uh, he is in the Hall of Fame and I've got the rings. And yeah. I guess we, you know, I did as, as well as I could with it, but I was um, even more amazed at how the similarities, there's endless similarities. And uh, I, I'm, I'm, I'm glad that, uh, you know, I could, I could live up to that end of the bargain. Usually when somebody says something like, you're going to be the next Mickey Mantle, it doesn't work out very well. Yeah. That's, that's, <laughs> yeah. No, that's, that's very cool. That's very cool. Like the whole symmetry of it and the fact yeah. that. Exactly. Um, and the fact that you guys struck up a relationship also. I mean, it's right. it's not just matching his numbers. It's also right. building the rapport. Um, yeah, well, I, I I sure as hell hope that um, Major League Baseball figures out a way to rectify. Uh, well, you know, I, I don't expect any major uh, uh, change in, in my position uh, relatively at all. But it's kind of hard for you to explain how I can be the top-ranked Dodger infielder, Los Angeles Dodger infielder, all time, be the number one player on those teams for six to ten years that I was there, and have somebody else get the credit. Yeah, uh, it doesn't make any sense to me. I mean, I didn't even make it out of the first round, nor did Ted Simmons. Uh, so you know, I'm I'm just asking, you know, kind of in a, in a sense. Uh, Give me a break here. Can somebody just explain to me why you know I got I got pushed under the rug? Yeah. Well, and the one thing that I've I've talked about with different guys is there's also just the eye test. Forget about numbers. Whether I mean the numbers are good, but forget right. about the numbers for a second. You just you know what you're looking at sometimes. And and we know what we're not talking about like a flash in the pan hot year or two. We're talking right. a decade, a decade and a half. You know what you're looking at. How does that not register? And that's the part that I just don't get. Yeah, well, look, I've got major league records. I, 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 you know, I've been involved with a lot of history and tradition. It's very deep in this organization. One of the three best organizations in the history of baseball. And I include the Yankees and then St. Louis in that. Yep. And, and, uh, uh, in that particular form. Uh, but, uh, yeah, I mean, really, did none of this, you know, mattered? It did for somebody else, you know. And, uh, you know, I would, uh, yeah, I, I, like I said, I, I'm not expecting miracles uh, at all. Uh, if somebody could just, you know, just give me a peace of mind and say, you know, we messed up or something. Uh, yeah. That would probably be okay, but I'm not going to pursue this to, to any great detail. Uh, it's been 30 some years now that I've uh, been retired and, uh, you know, it's, uh, uh, I know what I did. I know who I am. I know where I rank. Uh, it doesn't rank with those who make those kind of decisions. Yeah. Well, yeah. And not only do you know, and all the guys you played with know, but the guys who watched know. That's the part that drives me crazy. Like the fans know. You know, I bet you if you asked a lot of fans, they would think that you were in. That's the thing that's insane. Um, yeah. Well, I, I, you know, look, I, uh, um, uh, there's, there, trust me. There, there are a lot of lot of guys. I'm not just the only one. And and those names sure. that you mentioned, uh, you know, they they you know, you did your interview with Dale Murphy. Uh, uh, he 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 deserves more consideration. Bobby Grich, he I mean, this guy's got a war. 
that uh, better than some of the Hall of Famers, a lot of Hall of Famers. As a matter of fact, my Hall, of, my my war numbers uh, essentially Tony Perez. Right. Okay. I mean Tony Perez. Yeah. And that, <laughs> it's, I mean, it's funny. All I'm saying is, if it's good enough for him, should be good enough for me. Right. Right. Yeah. And I'm not going to tell you that I was Tony Perez. Uh, different, different makeup, different story. But um, if some of these things are related, uh, then uh, it, 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 I would hope that maybe it might uh, give somebody a second thought, might revisit it. Yeah, I could not agree more. And yeah. by the way, as we're talking, it just dawned on me. Um, tell me about your podcast. Um, my podcast is, uh, I've got, uh, five shows in the can right now. Um, I, um, it's more of an eclectic kind of a thing. I, we, we have, uh, we've had some comedians. We've had Jaime Harin. Uh, I'm going to have Mike Soshan this week. Um, uh, uh, Richard Montoya. I don't know if you know too much about him. Uh, uh, Paul Rodriguez, uh, Fraser Smith comedians that were that are big here in los angeles over the years and fraser smith used to have a show back in the late 70s that i was uh interviewed with a few times and we just reconnected um so i'm anxious to get that moving uh we're still in the in the growing pain stages trying to put things together and make things work um i do have a book coming out uh in uh, uh hopefully the spring uh it's in the hands of the editor right now and a biography uh yeah it's pretty much a story of my life uh okay. from the beginnings uh it took me both these projects have taken uh a year and a half plus uh the book got started uh a year ago september or february and uh we were doing a lot of that stuff by zoom uh because of the pandemic and uh, we had 21 hour segments that had to be transcribed and uh, it came out kind of so-so. Uh, but the bigger problem was uh, I lost my uh, ghostwriter, uh, uh, came down with cancer. And uh, so he had to abort and I had to start over. I started over with a, a one of a guy, one of the guys that was uh, one of our beat writers back in the early '80s, by the name of Ken Gurnick, hmm. and uh, he has uh, been a friend of mine for quite some time. So we were able to hammer that out, and uh, so now we've uh, we've got it in the hands of the publisher, and uh, you know, hopefully, we'll do the uh, marketing and the and the uh, the book shows, the book signings, and whatever else in the early part of next year and uh see where that goes too so those are the things that are keeping me busy right now but um yeah just uh i'm running into new territory here for the first time uh and i'm 74 years old <laughs> <laughs> and, and remind me the name of the podcast and the name of the book uh i'm not sure what the name of the book is yet we haven't come to they haven't come to a conclusion on that but the uh the podcast is uh we'll see about that it's on crn talk dot com and it's also on apple uh spotify and google okay perfect um and we go live on saturdays 11 a.m uh pacific standard time and you can pick up the shows uh with those other uh uh places uh 
and they have the library as well. Okay, got it. So, yeah, that's awesome. That's awesome. Well, again, yeah. Ron, thank you so much for you know for taking the time to come on. Again, like I said earlier, it, it's just so great to hear about you know the, the the early years in Washington, the Washington State years, coming through the Dodgers organization. Uh, you know, winning the World Series, winning with the Cubs, which was not easy to do, you know, at that point in time and uh, and everything else that you've got going on. It's, it's been fascinating hearing all the stories. Thank you, Rich. I, I appreciate you having me on and I enjoyed it very much. And thank you for listening to Chasing Hardware. I've been your host, Rich Lumello. The Michael Stanley Band brought us in and the suburbs with Life is Like are going to take us out. Speak to you next time. Feels like life. Come on.